I have some really exciting news for listeners of the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Most people think lifestyle investing is about making more money or creating additional passive income streams. And while that is part of it, the most savvy lifestyle investors understand that having a solid tax strategy is fundamental and really foundational to creating wealth. I firmly believe that having the right tax strategy is the single best investment that you can make. I know tax strategy isn't the sexiest topic, but once you understand a few key elements to the IRS playbook, the compounding benefit you receive year after year is enormously significant. In fact, we have members inside the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind who have used these strategies and have saved hundreds of thousands of dollars, and in some cases, millions of dollars. This is not a nice to have if you're interested in growing your wealth. This is a must. In our brand new tax strategy masterclass, I have hand-selected and shared the details of the 28 most valuable strategies to help you increase your tax savings this year and for years to come. Plus, if you want to hire a top-tier tax strategist, it can easily set you back tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. And you want to make sure that you have the best, most accurate information to ensure that you're hiring the right person for you. That's why we included a whole section with advice, resources, and multiple interviews with my personal tax specialists to help you build a bulletproof tax team, but for a fraction of the cost. The entire tax strategy masterclass was designed for people like you who want to keep more of their hard-earned money without having to sift through the complicated tax code. If you're interested, head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash tax to learn more about the course or set up a free consultation call with our team at lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash consultation. Again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash tax. Hey, just before we get to the show, I wanted to take a quick minute to explain how you can get access to my online course. Since launching the Lifestyle Investor book and the podcast, I've had a lot of people reaching out asking how I was able to multiply my net worth to over eight figures in such a short period of time and how they can start investing just like I do. While the podcast is loaded with lots of alternative investment advice from both myself and my guests, it's not intended to be a comprehensive system that walks you through my step-by-step process. That's why I decided to create the Lifestyle Investor Course, a complete roadmap for anyone who wants to take a deeper dive into the world of lifestyle investing. If you want all my strategies for creating passive income and building wealth conveniently packaged up into a simple to follow course, visit justindonald.com forward slash course for all the details. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. 
If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Today, I'm speaking with Tony Kappel. Tony is the principal and co-founder at Chicago Atlantic Group, a private market investment firm combining deep expertise with an entrepreneurial approach to multi-asset class investing. As a debt investor with over 10 years of experience in the specialty finance space, Tony has completed over 150 deals comprising over $5 billion in total credit. Prior to founding Chicago Atlantic Group, Tony was a managing director and head of underwriting at Stonegate Capital, a private credit investment firm that specializes in the cannabis industry. At Stonegate, he was responsible for credit, underwriting, and the growth strategy of the loan portfolio. Tony is an unbelievable source of information when it comes to understanding loan and fund structures. He knows exactly what to look for when it comes to protecting the downside and mitigating risk. He's also a wealth of knowledge when it comes to enhancing a deal and creating opportunities to earn better returns, or what I like to call income amplifiers. And today, you'll hear us talk all about it. We dig into debt structures, strategies for de-risking a deal, how to negotiate better terms with things like equity kickers and liquidation preferences, and why regulatory arbitrage is creating a massive opportunity in the cannabis industry. That and a whole lot more. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Tony has a gift for Lifestyle Investor podcast listeners. To better understand the major investing opportunity that exists right now in the cannabis industry, Tony and his team are sharing their market analysis and insights with you. If you want to better understand regulatory arbitrage and why so many investors are making massive returns, go get his free report. To get access to the offer, visit justindonald.com forward slash 40. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Tony Kappel. Hey, Tony, I'm so excited to hang out today. I am so appreciative of you making the time because I know that life is crazy and busy. And in your world, you're experiencing some of the most uh, success and uh, exciting things that you ever have. So thanks for making the time to be on the show today. Well, well thank you for having me. Uh, happy, happy to be on. You know, it, it's really fun uh, getting a chance to you know, really get to know each other over the last number of years. And uh, it's cool because we both have a mutual friend or friend Brian Rayner actually uh, connected us. And, you know, he, he felt like you had like, I just had to meet you like your your level of expertise in the world of underwriting is second to none and that you are just a wealth of knowledge and that you have expertise in some pretty niche markets. And uh, he's right. I mean, I have just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you and picking your brain. I mean, you love to share the knowledge you've accumulated. No, absolutely. And honestly, you know, thinking back to when, when Brian made the introduction, I mean, you never know what anything, you know, what will lead to what. And, you know, I still remember waiting to connect with you. Uh, I think you were on a, a European uh a mini, a mini road trip through Europe. And, uh, 
you know, we, we had, I think it must've been July or, or August when we connected and, you know, I, I, the feeling is, is mutual. I mean, you, the, the network that you, you have and have built and continue to build is, is second to none. And uh, no, it's been, it's been great, you know, great knowing you and, and, and great doing business with you. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. I've had a lot of fun. In fact, uh, we, we've had some great results together. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And uh, we've met some cool people together. And, uh, you know, it's really fun when, when, when you share a law firm as well that, you know, you trust and is top of their, their trade and their craft. And uh, that just gave me a lot of confidence as we move forward, you know, really in the introductory stages. But uh, it's been fun. You know, when I think about you and I think about kind of how you got started in the business world, um, you really got your start in lending, right? And in underwriting deals that y- you you have this level and the sophistication in the world of debt that not most people have, because you can be a lender. That doesn't mean that you understand what goes into these structures and and how to actually underwrite and analyze these deals and protect yourself. I'd love to hear kind of your level of expertise and what you've done and how you got started. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So I I started out at Wells Fargo Foothill, you know, and, you know, at the time was one of the, it was known as the the lender of last resort, at least from the banking world perspective. And it was in the asset-based lending market. So these are bank, these are companies that, uh, either they want more leverage than uh, a commercial bank is willing to give, or the business is in a transitional period that needs, you know, a specialty structure. And so I, I showed it was a, a collateral examiner. So I would be the guy or the analyst that would go on site uh, to uh, the business and do all the due diligence for the underwriter prior to doing a new loan. And so I would go kick the tires. I'd spend a week or two at a company write my report and move on. And, you know, out of college, it was, I, I couldn't think of a better uh, first job because I would go to 20 to, to 30 companies a year. And you, you know, you specially focus on, you know, cash flow collateral. Why is that business successful? What are the, the pitfalls? And, and you would just go and move on. You move on, you move on. So it could be auto manufacturer, tier one or tier two. It could be cheese manufacturer, distributor. I mean, you name it. Uh, I, I did about 120 some deals while I was there. And so that was an incredible experience. Um, you, you know, we learned a lot. And I guess you could say, fortunately or unfortunately, I went through the, the, the GFC or the, the global financial crisis of uh, 2008 with them. So I had the uh, luxury of having to liquidate a few companies, I guess you could say luxury or, or um, burden, but that is an incredible learning experience. And you, you see kind of what things are worth in the worst of times. And you, you, you know, it was a incredible learning experience, um, but that, you know, was, was very valuable. I was gonna say, and you got it early in your career, like what better timing to see that early on. That's powerful because you're, you're seeing what, you know, typically is going to happen under normal circumstances. That's, that's how most people analyze a deal. 
But what you want to do is you want to stress test that deal. And once you are able to see a deal and, and see the stress and how that uh, impacts a company over a financial crisis, over a recession, over just any, anything that could be a huge burden uh, or could trigger a collapse, you then become that much better to structure all future deals. Absolutely. And investing, whether it's debt or equity, it's, it's not something you learn in a book. You know, it's, it's experience. And, you know, it, it, every deal is different. Every situation is different. Every context is different. And it really matters as getting a lot of at-bats and, and being through from, from cradle to grave uh, in, in these deals. And so that I just had the for, you know, fortunate experience of being in great deals and tough deals. And uh, that really adds to your, your overall, let's just say, uh, toolkit uh, to know what to do if and when something happens, but more so know what to do so it doesn't happen again. Yeah. And you had mentioned here, this, this is a good point. You specifically said there are debt deals and there are equity deals. And I would venture to guess as you, know, you and I would say, well, th- those are two opposite ends of the extreme. I would venture to guess most people probably don't know the difference between the two or the fact that there is uh, two different vehicles here. Can you elaborate on that for our audience? Yeah. So, I mean, really debt, you think about it as, as the bank, right? Who's the, the, the lender on your mortgage, the bank on your mortgage, or uh, in this case, lender to the company. They are the first to get paid or in what's called the, the waterfall or the liquidation preference. And therefore, they're entitled to a lower return. That's why it's 3% for your mortgage or 4% to borrow for your company. Because if anything goes wrong, they're the first to get paid. And thus, uh, it's a, a much more protected position. Equity, on the other hand, is the last to get paid, but you're entitled to the upside. And um, that is really that there's a lot of nuance in between, but those are the, the primary differences. And there are certain investments that are going to combine the two, where there's a debt component and there's an equity component. And there are a lot of different ways to kind of construct one of those deals. But uh, that's something that you uh, often have employed in the past and currently employ in some of the investments that you do today, right? Yeah, no. So really, you know, what, what, you know, we, what we have done today and, you know, we built a firm and, and we seek out what we call inefficient markets where, the demand for capital far exceeds the supply, which creates a, you know, a very, you know, in this case, a lender friendly environment. And so because the demand is so high for the capital, uh, and in some cases, we're able to not only charge above market interest rates, uh, but we're also able to get a piece of the company uh, through warrants or through membership interests or other instruments like that, where it's just an added kicker uh, and upside to, to your to your position. And again, there are not many industries and, and, and areas where you're able to do this. It's just about finding that inefficient, you know, market to, to do it. Yeah, that, that's awesome that A, you found it and B, that the gap is so wide. And we're, we're going to talk about this uh, a little bit more. But before we dive into that, you Moved from Wells Fargo, if my memory serves me correctly, to a, a, a specialty firm, a very well-known, like high-end brand. Um, and, and talk about your experience there. Yeah, no. So, uh, and prior to that, I was uh, at a, 
at a middle market bank in, in Chicago area, you know, we did a lot of asset based deals, but we also uh, had a lot, did a lot of workout deals, which are the deals that are, go from commercial to uh, a different department because they, they run into trouble for one reason or another. So uh, there we, you know, learned a lot of how to deal with those situations. Uh, but most recently I was uh, had accredited in underwriting at Stonegate Capital, which is a, a lower middle market, specialty finance fund in Chicago. And we would do the businesses that are a high growth, uh, sponsor backed, negative cash flow. Uh, those, you know, would be, be doing a senior debt deal within the assets. Uh, we would also do distress turnaround in special situations. Uh, and then also uh, some of what's called rediscounting software loans. So these are we'll call esoteric credit classes that a bank cannot do. And we're able to charge for the added risk that, that may be inherent in the deal. Perfect. And you mentioned senior debt, and that just means you're in the first position, the best position, the, the one that will be paid out first should the deal not work out. Uh, and even if the deal does work out, you're, you're in the first position. So I think that's a very important point there. And it's great that you had the experience. I mean, you, you had the experience of super conservative. You worked for a bank. Banking, you know, uh, these are gen- Wells, Wells Fargo. This is like a, a conservative bank that's going to be by the book. And then you've got this specialty lending shop where you're doing a lot riskier stuff and you're, you know, investing or, or, you know, lending to companies that are, you know, high risk, high growth operating companies. I mean, a whole bunch of things under the sun, but I feel like what a great cross section of uh, experience that you got doing that before you went on your own and started your own organization. Right. Yeah. It, again, I, I think like any investments, it's, it's at bats and experience of doing deal after deal after deal. And, you know, for every deal you do do, you probably look at 15 to 20 deals that you don't do. But that entails an education process. Why does this deal make sense? Why does it not? Um, so there, there's a significant amount of, um, you know, businesses you learn about through that process. And And again, it's all about, you know, debt is about structuring the downside there's a you know you, you're there it's about how much money you don't lose versus really how much money you make whereas equity is really the opposite yeah how so i love that uh emphasis on not losing money protecting the downside that is a total debt play a total lending operation where you want to make sure you're not losing money you're okay with not as big of a return you just don't want to lose uh, and I think that's a great point. Now, you had mentioned earlier that you underwrote 120 deals while you're at Wells. And I know you underwrote a ton of deals, uh, you know, at, at various other uh, places. I'm curious, though, of the number of deals you underwrote, how many deals did you actually look at? Like, how many things came across your plate? Well, you know, I would say, I mean, it has to be in the thousands by now. Um, and, you you know, it's funny, you, you, you see deals... And, you, you know, you may not spend a lot of time on it, may not do it. And then you see it a few years later in a, in a news release and you think, I, 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 remember, I remember that name somewhere. And sure enough, you, you, we looked at it uh, for, for one reason or another. But the one thing that I, I've always I've been uh, fathom, just unfathomable about the United States is that there are so many businesses and com- companies in this country that you there there's an endless amount of opportunities. And that's one thing that I, I just... It's crazy because you would think at a certain point you'd run out, but uh, it's it's not been anywhere the case. Yeah. And 
you know, it's great that you're taking all this experience, but your foundation, uh, we didn't talk about you, you graduated from a very prestigious, very, uh, well-known business school, university of Chicago booth. Uh, and you met some incredible people while you're there. You met your business partners while you were there. You met, uh, friends and colleagues and, and, uh, you know, advisors, uh, there. And I'm curious about that experience because I I've just heard nothing short of tremendous things about the education there. Yeah, we honestly we I have a we have a lot to owe to the, the school. Um, you know, I. But it's funny. I, I'm I'm lucky because my wife effectively made me go to business school. <laughs> I would have never gone if it wasn't for her. You know, pushing me and and in fact, may giving me no choice. So I had to take the GMAT. I had to do all these things that I didn't want to do. Uh, and I, and ultimately, I didn't think I could get in either. Um, that's just. All those things were working against, um, you know, her, uh, but 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 she prevailed and and for for the the better and and ultimately I met my two business current business partners uh, there John and Andreas who, again, um, you know we built a pretty pretty nice firm and without uh, without having such a strong cohesive team team where everybody kind of works and, and complements each other you, you just can't do you can't do something you know as great without having that recipe. So have a lot, lot to, to, to owe to the, the school. Yeah. And it's great because, I mean, it's a lot of work to get into any business school, but to get into one of the top in the nation, to get into Booth, you know, you've got to do your homework. You've got to, you know, you've got to commit to the work and they are very selective. So, and, and I've had the luxury and pleasure of meeting both your partners and just think the world of them. And really what I think is cool is how each of you complement the other person so well. Uh, and we can definitely get into that, but I guess we're at the point now where you have all this experience, you're about to embark on this journey of starting your own business. And I mean, that's got to be nerve wracking. You are, are going into uncharted territory at this point, and you start a specialty asset management firm that specializes in the cannabis industry. And I would think most people would say, gosh, Tony, that's out of left field. Are, are you sure that you want to do that? Because you started early on. You started before the, the buzz and the craze in this industry existed. So I'd love to hear that story. Yeah, no, no. I, and it's, it's, it's funny because, again, without the right people and the right recipe, you know, certain things just never happen. And so, you know, really started at being at Stonegate and just seeing, seeing some of these businesses. This is in 18, 17 and 18. And, you know, you see that here is an, an incredible opportunity. This industry is while they're still, you know, it's still legal from a federal perspective. It's still there's incredible growth that is coming ahead, and and so while you look at the non-cannabis industry, there's just so much capital in the system right now, and so what's happening to a lot a lot of deals are becoming you know the structures are getting looser, leverage is going up, returns are going down, and that's all a function of just too much capital in the system versus underlying credit risk, and so. We started to look at some of these these other businesses. Now we could never do them because of our LP base and we had background bank leverage and so on. But here was an opportunity, like, hey, you can you can specialize in a growing market that's arguably uncorrelated to the greater market, but then bring institutional 
you know, know-how policies and procedures and, and build a real firm. And like I said earlier, it's an inefficient market where the demand for capital far exceeds the supply, but you're able to generate far above market returns because of, in this case, it's a regulatory arbitrage. So it made all the sense in the world. Uh, I decided to leave Stonegate. And, and it's funny because I told John, my current partner, hey, this is something we should look into. Uh, and John built a, a pretty large hospitality business and he's used to operating in one of the most competitive markets in, in the world. And again, he, he's looking for that inefficient market. I told him about it thinking, you know, there's no way I would ever do it. But he said, yeah, let's do it. And he didn't even think about it. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, like, I, I don't know about that. Uh, and so ultimately, that is what kind of made it so that, you know, John is the entrepreneur to the core and, and ultimately had the, the vision where, you know, I'm more of the, the banker, lender, you know, let's say the sky is falling guy. Uh, he, he had the foresight to kind of see forward uh, much further than me. He convinced me to, uh, to, to then ultimately leave and, and, and get, this, get this started. Well, it's great because you're, you say no, that's your job. Your job is to be as critical of every investment that there is. You, you go into it as this can't work. Uh, and if I can prove the fact that it can, then this is a good investment. But, but you go into it saying, no way, this is a bad deal. Everything's wrong with it. It can't survive for so many reasons. And then you kind of work against that mindset and that uh, that theory. And I think that's great. Uh, definitely. And one thing I'll, I'll take it a step further because, you know, right now with our investment committees, myself, John and Andreas, and there'll be other people coming on soon, but we have such different backgrounds and perspectives and things that I like that John hates that he likes that Andreas like, and so on. And so we have a very diverse investment committee. If you go to most investment firms or even finance firms, it's very myopic. There's everybody looks at things the same way because they all came from the same background. It's what is the cash flow? What's the collateral? You know, it's the only one way to look at it. In, in, in the case of cannabis, it's such an operationally intensive business that having the operational view versus a financial or collateral view is just as important, if not more important when determining winners and losers. So John brings a, a view and an experience to, to our team that I think separates us from, from other people because he can go in, he can see, you know, what is the, how is everything flow? What is the, you know, what is the production? What's the cost of production? All the things that may not show up in a financial statement, but really is what matters at the end of the day. And so we have done some deals that, that I had trouble with in the beginning, but John convinced me because of X, Y, or Z. And these deals are turning out to be incredible deals because we have warrants in some of them and uh, we're going to get paid a, 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 you know, an, an amazing return on a, a risk-adjusted basis given that we're senior secured debt. Yeah, that, and I definitely want to dive into some of these terms you're using, some of the perks, some of what I like to call, uh, you, you, like when you look at a deal, uh, there, there are certain ways that you can amplify the deal, amplify the terms, amplify the income. So I call them income amplifiers. Uh, so I really want to dive into those. Um, but before we do, you mentioned something earlier that I think is really important. And I want to kind of capture this. You said 
something that you really love about the cannabis industry is regulatory arbitrage. And I think in order to do this topic justice, because I think this is one of the greatest keys, one of the biggest perks, one of the, the I mean, this is the reason that this is so lucrative. I'd like to dissect this a little bit with you. Yeah, absolutely. So what that means is, you know, and, and for, for everybody's purpose, cannabis is still considered illegal on a federal level. But we all know that there are various states, I think about 40 states now have some form of legalization. Now, the federal government has not done anything from an enforcement perspective. And that, that's, you know, for you know, a, a long period of time. So while it's still considered illegal, it, it really, they haven't done anything enforcing it and so on. And so because of that, all of the traditional capital providers are not in the space, whether it's banks, whether it's uh, institutional investors, um, just all the capital that is just shut out. So because of that, there's a very a capital-starved environment. And so ultimately, because we have capital, uh, we're able to generate far above market returns because a lot of people are not allowed to invest or are afraid to invest because of the perception of that, you know, that differential between federal and state legality. But that is a perfect scenario where I think we are very comfortable that, that this is this market's only going one direction. It's going it's it's not a matter of if, but when it's fully legal. And because of that, we're very comfortable doing deals, specializing, learning and, and building a, you know, a real firm while people are still worried about it. And then that's why we're able to generate such high returns. And you're able to generate high returns because they're willing to pay abnormally high interest rates. And the reason for it, and I think sometimes people look at this and they say, oh man, you're, you're gouging the cannabis industry, but that's actually not it. The reality is they would rather pay a high interest rate than give up the equity in their company because they're growing so fast. These are like, you know, quarter over quarter, like massive, you're talking 30% growth, 25, 30% growth quarter after quarter. I mean, it's, the industry is just booming. And I think it's important for people to realize that this is a win-win situation. It's a win for the cannabis companies that don't have to give up equity or don't have to give up as much equity. Uh, it's a win for the company, you know, for your your specialty firm. And then it's a win for the investors because they make abnormally high returns then as well. And so what a cool um, just way to kind of connect uh, th those three different uh, uh, areas, those three different groups that generally are not aligned. Uh, absolutely. And one thing, and this is one thing, and it's a simple concept, but that they they really they forced the concept into your, into your brains at business school and everything is about opportunity cost. In the case of the, the borrower, like you said, they can borrow at 12, 13, 14%, or they can sell a piece of their company, which then is ultimately way more expensive. So they do this by choice. They, they want to do this, but they are borrowing at these higher rates. The return on the capital they're, they're getting and using is significantly more than what they're paying us. They may be buying another company or a dispensary or, or a cultivation facility. They're gonna be generating 50 to 100% returns for their equity. So paying us a higher amount, 
it doesn't matter because the equity is the beneficiary of that spread of return. Uh, and that's why it all makes sense. But everything needs to be priced off of opportunity cost. And that's really the, the way to look at something. Yeah. And you talked about the spread or the delta, that margin of difference between what you're paying for money and what you're earning with that money. And that's the name of the game in everything. That's the name of the game in real estate. It's the name of the game in cannabis. It's the name of the game in running a company. It's about repurposing the dollars that you borrow or the dollars that you uh, have invested and generate a greater return than the cost of that capital. And you guys not only do a great job of really purposing capital well, but you do a great job of finding companies that are poised to expand at a rapid clip. And, you know, I, I think that that's tremendous. And, and to that point, you know, if you look at one of the things in lending, you, you ask yourself, what is the use of proceeds? You know, that's an important fact. In this case, virtually every single dollar that we're lending out is for growth CapEx or mergers and acquisitions. Those are both highly accretive uses of capital. And so that is a great thing to be financing because you're ultimately adding value to the business that you're giving money to which further mitigates your risk and maybe makes you more money because you have an equity kicker or something else along the way. As a, as a uh, the flip side of that, let's say you're financing a, a dividend. Well, if someone's taking money out, it's not a great signal and it's a, it's a worse reason to be financing a business. So that's an example where because there's so much growth that's going to be ahead of us for the next five to 10 years, it's great to invest in a rising tide environment. Whether you're in, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. It's a lot easier to be right, but it's also a lot easier to make an outsized return. Yeah, great points all the way around. And I want to give some props to uh, Andreas, one of your other partners, because he is quite possibly one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. I mean, that guy has a mind that works at a level that my mind cannot fathom. And this guy, I mean, to give some perspective, this is a guy that uh, is not a lawyer, but has studied law and has studied contracts at such a uh, an in-depth level on his own time, on his own accord, that he knows more than a lot of attorneys out there. And he is often proving uh, attorneys wrong that are, are, you know, kind of questioning his uh, uh, decisions or the way that he's uh, interpreting terms. It's really just fascinating. He, he, uh, he's definitely, uh, he, he, he loves to read. And if, if he hasn't, if he doesn't know something, you, you, you can bet that he's going to read until he knows it and then we'll know it in the morning. And, you know, one thing I tell people and, you know, in, you go back to the Stonegate days, you know, most of the legal and the credit decisions would always go through me. And I was kind of a, uh, a one-man show, you know, to a certain extent. Uh, here, being on these some of these credit agreement calls, I've never felt more ineffectual in my life. And it's ultimately a great thing because I don't like to do it anymore. And so he's, he's way better at it. And uh, has, again, it's just been very vital because these, these loans and these structures are so complicated in this industry, much more so than, than the non-cannabis world. So it's worked out great. And, and again, he's been in a great addition uh, to our partnership because he 
is, you know, he's does so many things great that, that myself or John doesn't and, and vice versa. And the way he can crunch data is just out of this world. So I, you know, just all, all hats off to him, all the praise in the world and just to your team, the way that you guys operate and your, your strengths. It's, it's really cool. Um, I want to get to uh, a couple of things. So number one, when you look at a deal, when you look at investing, so for me as an investor and for our audience, as they are investing in things, there are two things that I talk a lot about. One of them is protecting the downside, protecting the, the risk, de-risking a deal. The other one is enhancing the upside, creating more opportunities to earn some better returns. And so, you know, in my book, the second, you know, the lifestyle investor, the second commandment uh, is uh, all about de-risking the deal. And, and then the sixth commandment is all about income amplifiers. And so I want to tackle both of these with you because I think you do them brilliantly. And let's start first with um, the upside, because you've mentioned a bunch of terms that just are music to my ears. All right. You, you've mentioned equity kickers. I love equity kickers. This is like one of my favorite things to negotiate in a deal. And you've talked about warrants as well. And I think it would be great to kind of hear uh, the difference in those and why you might want one or, over the other and when one is applicable and one's not applicable. Because basically, in either case, you're getting free equity or you could execute the option to get free equity. So let's talk about these. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I would say the, the majority of what of, of equity kickers were able to get out in the form of a, a warrant or what a warrant is a, a, an option to purchase. And if you think about it, uh, let's just say, for an example, you have a company that is trading at ten dollars a share. Let's say we do a loan to that company. And, and today uh, we're entitled to 10 warrants at $10 a share, because that happens to be the, the share price at the time of the deal. Now, that is not always the case. It's just a prime example. Let's say the loan is a three-year loan, and at the end of three years, the company is now worth $20 a share. Well, we have the option to purchase that company at $10 a share, and it's trading at 20. So we would then make the spread between our strike price and what the company is worth at the time of exercise. And so, that is uh, what would be a warrant or a stock option, which again is the majority of, of what we're able to get. The reason that that's what we're getting is because it's easier to sell to the company that, hey, I'm putting money in now, I'm investing in the debt, but I wanna participate in some of the upside, a small piece of the upside that I'm helping create. And so you're not coming in at zero, you're not coming in a dollar, you're coming in at 10, which is that, that price thing. And that's really why options uh, are, or, or warrants are really the predominant uh, form of equity kicker. Now, sometimes you'll get what you actually get equity in the company. The reason we're not getting that is that it creates more tax consequences for, for us as, as the fund and, or uh, as the, the firm. And we would rather not, you know, create any, any tax issues, you know, by doing that. Hey, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my online course. As a listener, you probably know my story. In under two years, I had multiplied my net worth to over eight figures and my investments were generating enough passive income for my wife and me to quit our jobs. 
Since launching the Lifestyle Investor book and podcast, I've had a lot of people reaching out asking how I was able to accomplish this in such a short period of time and how they can start investing just like I do. My methods are unconventional, but I've always wanted to share my strategies and help as many people as possible accomplish financial freedom. And while the podcast is loaded with lots of alternative investment advice from both myself and my guests, it's not intended to be a comprehensive system that walks you through my step-by-step process. That's why I decided to create the Lifestyle Investor Course, a roadmap for anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of lifestyle investing. Anyone can use my system, no matter what level they're at in their investing career. So if you want all my strategies for creating passive income and building wealth conveniently packaged up into a simple to follow course, visit justindonald.com forward slash course for all the details. Now let's get back to the show. And that makes sense on a lot of levels. Another point that I, I want to bring up about the difference with equity kickers and warrants is you know, if you're starting a new business or if you're buying something out of bankruptcy, it's a lot easier to issue equity at that point in time when there's no sales versus a company that's already operating, there are sales, right? So there is kind of like a value to the company. It's hard to assign that equity. So it's a lot easier to kind of go with the warrants and say, well, here's your strike price. And you would only execute then if it makes sense in the fact that the the shares would sell for more, right? So it'd be, uh, you know, in, in many cases, um, people would wait, you, you would exercise that option uh, at the time that it was, uh, you know, th- that there was that um, delta and you're going to make a margin and it would be kind of like a cashless transaction, right? You, you don't, it's not like you have to put in, you know, a uh, thousand shares times, you know, $10 a share. You would just make the difference in the strike price and that current uh, price. Yeah, and that's called cashless exercise, but all, all deals, it all depends on how you structure them from the front end. We prefer cashless exercise because we would love not having to put money in. So, um, you know, that's the, the preferred, preferred form. One of the things I love a ton about what you do, Tony, is, and, and what I do when I structure deals is negotiating a liquidation preference. And w- with a liquidation preference, you are basically moving up uh, or down. Ideally, you're moving up in the pecking order of who gets paid when and where. And so I'd love to talk about how you use these um, liquidation preferences to your advantage. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like uh, the equity kicker, it's harder to get the liquidation preference. Sometimes it could be in the form of what's called preferred equity, where you may be entitled to get one times or two times your money before the common equity gets any of the return. Um, sometimes that's how it's done. But in general, um, you know, being in the debt is really how you, you protect that. So from a liquidation perspective or per preference perspective, you get paid 100% in full before anybody else gets a penny. And that's why in the majority of what we do is in, in the debt, of course, so that if anything does go wrong, we're, we're absolutely getting paid. And there's a difference also between uh, 
creating these the uh, a liquidation preference on the gross proceeds versus the net proceeds right so the the net proceeds means someone else got paid somewhere before you did but the gross proceeds means you are truly first in line you are the first person to make uh, profit or make money on a transaction and i know that that would be the goal of every liquidation preference and it's a, another example of that. It's like, you know, people, and we, we haven't done this and we don't, but people that structure royalties uh, as a percentage of revenue as opposed to a percentage of net income or EBITDA or, or, or free cash flow, you're effectively taking your, your cut at the top line. So before anybody, you know, grabs anything, uh, you're, you're getting paid. And that's why they're very punitive uh, to the, the company that's paying them. It's what we think of as like, the government in taxes is like they have a royalty on everybody. So you, they get about 50% of your work, uh, which is just, uh, it's a function of the country we live in, but it's a, it's a great position for them to be in. Yeah, there's no doubt. Now you just mentioned three important um, financial terms that I think we should actually break down as well. You mentioned net income, EBITDA, and uh, free cash flow. And these are all different, I guess, financial mechanisms or profit mechanisms that you can use to calculate the success of a company. And different industries are going to kind of focus on, on different ones. You're probably, I mean, though, there are investors that really feel strongly on some over the other, but I'd love to hear kind of your opinion on those three and what you prefer and, and if there is a reason to prefer one over the other? Yeah, I think from a lending perspective, you always want to look at free cash flow. So free cash flow means at the end of the day, how much cash have you increased? So from day zero to day 10 or day 20. And that means you're effectively your, your net income after tax minus any capital expenditures. And so what I'm as a lender, cash is king. I want to know how much cash you are making after you pay everybody, because I want to make sure that you can pay my loan back. And I want to make sure you can pay it back in the time that we are giving you. Uh, now, from an equity perspective, generally EBITDA is, is the more important metric. It's, it's important in, in debt, but, but equity likes to look at EBITDA, which stands for earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization. Because what that means is, you know, what is the operating income of the business? And without taking effect of the capital structure, so take out how much interest it pays, how much taxes it pays, and a few other things that have nothing to do with the operations of the business. Because at that point, you're, you can see what is the earnings power uh, for the business under, under any capital structure. And so that's really why EBITDA is the more important uh, metric for, for, for equity. And so in what cases do you use net income or in real estate, it would be often referred to as net operating income? Yeah, net income, you know, is, is really in, in some cases, net income equals free cash flow. It depends on the type of business, because, again, not all not all businesses have a lot of capital expenditures or having to buy capital equipment to continue to, you know, or operating assets to build business. So it, it all depends on the type of business, but net income is also important because net income could mean free cash flow as well. Awesome. Now, 
what other mechanics do you use that help kind of sweeten the pot? Like how can we create more income amplifiers than what we've just discussed? And by the way, what we've just discussed are great. I mean, if you got just one of those, it could be incredible, but often you guys are getting many of these and, and in the deals that I do, I'll often get these layered on top of one another. So is there anything else that we should pay attention to? Yeah, you know, it all depends. Whenever you're pricing a deal, a big part of it, and and this is, and again, I, I think we spoke about this, Justin, on a lot of our calls, is, you know, psychology is a big a big factor in investing, lending, uh, in, in pricing. And so, you know, knowing uh, how your your customer, your could be your borrower, could be the company you're, you're buying, how they think and how they operate. And so, one example, you know, that we look think at is that sometimes the only thing that matters to the, to the borrower is the interest rate. They don't care about the the, the closing fee or the uh, the OID, which is called original issue discount. They don't really care so much about the other fees because they're fixated on interest rate. And so, in that case, you're able to have a lower interest rate but have higher fees that ultimately get to you to a better a better spot from a return perspective. That's awesome. And, and those are kind of like the focuses on upside, on income amplifiers, how to enhance the overall return. Let's take the other side of the coin here and talk about how do you de-risk a deal? I mean, one of the ways most certainly is collateral. You would collateralize uh, your loan or an investment. You could collateralize for a lot greater than the value of the loan or investment. I think that is, you know, a real interesting way of doing it. There are other mechanics that you can put into place, but I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on how you do it, because this is really where you are the master, right? An underwriter, an analyst, like this is your sweet spot. Yeah. And, and that, you know, uh, we talk, we spoke about being senior, right? Senior being, meaning you're, you are the first to get paid in, in, in the, the capital structure. The next piece that goes along with that is secured. So senior secured lending, that's what we do. That means that not only are you first, but you have a, a security interest or a position on specific collateral. That could be real estate, that could be equipment, that could be accounts receivable, it could be intellectual property, or it could be the stock of the business. All of these are forms of collateral that further improve your position. Like your, like your bank that is your mortgage provider, they are lending you money based on the value of your house. And therefore they lend you 60 or 70%. And at, at, they feel at, at no point or at a very, very low percentage chance that they'll ever lose money because it's backed by the, the collateral. And so number one is just being secured and, and being secured at a very low, what we call loan to value. So lending 20, 30, 50% against that collateral value really gets you in a good spot. Uh, beyond that, there are other ways to, to improve your position. It could be having a personal guarantee from the owner. Uh, that I would say it, you, it's more so in place for a cooperation guarantee than an actual access to secondary capital, but it's good to have um, their attention and cooperation if anything ever was to go wrong. Um, beyond that, it's really what I like to, to call structuring the covenants in place so that if anything happens uh, from a financial perspective or anything changes, that you have an ability to effectuate change before there's real deterioration in value in, in your borrower. 
Yeah, that that's really good. Um, so much wisdom there. And, you know, when I think about collateralizing effectively, you can have as many forms of collateral as you want. It's, it's all up to kind of the negotiation here. And so you can have something that's two times of value, three times, four times, five times. You could have uh, various different things. You could have accounts receivable. You could have real assets. You can have equipment. You can have uh, owners pledge uh, stock of their company. There, there are so many different ways to do it. I'm curious what's most common and maybe for you, what's most desirable? Yeah, you know, and the most common is what's called a, a UCC uh, a filing on, on their business and their, their, their receivables inventory. Uh, and that's, that's putting a, on file that you're a secured party. And so that anybody else looking, they will see that you are first position on that, that business uh, or whatever position. And so that is a, uh, it's called the universal commercial code. And um, it's a way to perfect your security interest. On real estate, it's either in the form of a mortgage or a deed of trust. So again, that's a filing that is that anybody can find out and look and see that you are per- perfected on that that spot. So that means they can't they can't sell anything without you getting the proceeds of that, or the sale is null and void, and therefore the buyer doesn't own anything. And so that's really the 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 the, the those are the most prevalent. Now, in terms of our structures. Uh, we are we are big believers in stock pledges of the the membership interests, um, and because that that's effectively that's where it's important when you you have a business that has, in some cases, more intangible value. Where you know we're lending to these businesses that have the the licenses, the licenses to these businesses are extremely valuable. And and again, I'll give you an example. Pennsylvania is a it's a medical only state. There are and this is in the cannabis industry, there's 26 grow processing licenses in a state of, I think, 13 million people. That piece of paper the, that gives you the ability to cultivate and sell is worth a lot of money. Having the pledge of the stock of the company that owns that is the best way to be secured uh, from, a, from a structural perspective. Yeah, and, and these licenses in the states where they restrict them, I mean, these can go anywhere from like 10 million to $70 million for a single license. It's just incredible. And so I get that one of your advantages is targeting operations, targeting businesses in states where they restrict these licenses. I know it doesn't have to be limited to that, but I believe there's just so much more upside and so much more protection when that's the route you go. And you guys are great at that. No, and that's, again, that goes to lending, you know, you're lending at such a low level to the enterprise value of the business. And that means that you'll, they'll never let you take the business. And, you know, we're lenders. We just want to get paid our interest and then get paid back and we move on and do the next. But because of that dynamic, our, the risk of default is so low because the equity owners will lose so much more that if, the, if they end up not paying you. And that's like, for example, we could have a five or a $10 million loan against a company that's worth $100 million. If they actually default and not pay you, you may be in a better position. Now that's not what we want, but because of that, it, it lowers our risk of default, which is ultimately what we're looking for. 
Yeah. In other words, if you own a company that's worth a hundred million dollars, you're going to do whatever you humanly can do to figure out what you need to, to not default. So you have the greatest motivation ever from the borrower. And then on top of that, if it just doesn't work out, you're in an infinitely and exponentially greater position as the lender. And, and so I love the leverage that exists there. And I, I really love, you know, it, it's, you're basically creating a contract that is, strongly encouraging a certain behavior to take place to honor the deal as it stands. And, and if for some reason someone didn't, your opportunity is better. And so I always talk about when, you know, when you're going to lend, uh, I like structuring deals where the second best option is just the original agreement and the interest and, in, you know, warrants that you structured. But the best option is if they default. Again, you don't want it to happen, but that's the best structure. Yeah, and again, we, we we pick people and great operators that it, that it's very unlikely to happen because you know it's it's a lot of very timely thing. But think about like in real estate lending specifically, you know the the real estate lenders say, would I be happy owning that property for for the amount I'm lending? Absolutely. Then that's a great deal, and that's sometimes that is a really a great lend, real estate lenders you know internal underwriting, and that's how they view value, and um, that is really. Uh, you know, a kind of a um, simplistic way of thinking about um, real estate lending in that case. Yeah. Are you getting it at a good price? If you're getting it that far under value, why not? This is a great investment. I love that. So, Tony, tell me where the name Chicago Atlantic Group came from, because I love the name. It just has such a a cool vibe to it. It sounds very uh, prestigious and very large. And and so uh, share that story because this is a fun story. Yeah, no, you know, I really, we were looking for an institutional name or, or we wanted something that sounded almost like a railroad, like we're, we're playing Monopoly or something like that. And uh, it, it came together uh, also with the help of, there is a, another firm who uh, is here in Chicago uh, that is Chicago Pacific Founders um, that I happen to know some of the, uh, the partners there and, and our, our family. And so we, we somewhat ripped them, ripped off their name to a certain extent, but just went the other direction uh, in, uh, in the country. So we were targeting that, that railroad and that, that institutional name, and, and that's really why it came together. And of course, our roots to the University of Chicago and, um, and, and so on had something to do with it as well. Well, I love it. You know, you, you've got people and, and companies that inspire you. And it's cool when you can kind of use that for kind of what you're building your foundation on. And I think that that's awesome. I always say steal from the best with pride. Uh, and, and so, you know, especially when it's just, you know, things like uh, names or uh, ideas or wisdom, just take it as your own. And, and uh, you can always give credit where credit's due, but, you know, utilize that content. Uh, so I think that that's awesome. So you, you've got this uh, great company. You're, you started with, you know, very few people. In fact, you and I spoke originally. And when we talked, there weren't any investors yet. 
And in fact, the first time we spoke, the subscription docs were still getting finalized. Uh, and so I feel so proud and excited that I could be, you know, one of the first, if not the first to know you and get to know Chicago Atlantic Group and to really vet this deal at a high level and, and your company. And so I feel like I've been, it's like when you, you're first to hear about a band, it's local band that ends up blowing up and becoming huge. And, uh, and so that's how I feel about you guys and your organization. And it's so neat to see, you know, like today having a, a record day in your organization and uh, on a couple of different levels and just the clientele that you now attract is vastly different. I mean, you're in the institutional realms now versus just the retail realm. And I think that that's a cool evolution. I just want to pay you uh, props and, and, you know, offer a, a sincere congratulations. I, we appreciate that. And I can, I can kind of tell you, you know, never in a million years would I have thought, you know, looking back 12, 24, 36 months, you, you never know where you're going to end up. And, and uh, I mean, you know, we're far in excess of anything that we expected. And I think, again, it's a function of, of great people, uh, great team, you know, that cares about creating and, and building value for people. And then, of course, I mean, you know, Justin, having people like you and, and early investors is, is invaluable because one, you know, right now we have, I think we're over 200 investors and, you know, we've raised now over $200 million. We have grown through, it's been all organic growth. It's been through word of mouth, through mainly happy investors, like people like yourself. And, that's the best way to grow because, it, it, again, it, you're not having a, a, what's called a placement agent or a, a banker raising money for you. It's literally people just being very happy and saying, hey, talk to my friend, talk to my friend. And, and that kind of builds off and is, it, it snowballs or uh, is, it, you know, it builds off itself. And, you know, we have now we have families in, in, in Ireland, Switzerland, Monaco, Sweden, these are all people that are in the, in the, in the, you know, invest with us that have all been introductions. And it, it's just, it's crazy to think of the, the people that I've been able to meet along the way. And, um, you know, it's, it, it's really about for us, you know, we, we are trying to build something long-term and, and make money for people. And, and we're looking at 10 years or 15 or 20 years. And so we're not, you know, that, that's really what matters when you're building, a, you know, a value. You know, it's so cool seeing where you started with, you know, smaller investors and most companies, uh, mo most, you know, investment organizations, they, they never make it past that. Well, you not only got past retail and you still bring retail in, but you have family offices that invest with you and your company. You have billionaires that invest with you and your company and most organizations never have the privilege of being able to attract investors and investment organizations like that. So very cool. Well, you know, again, I, I think we've all learned uh, an immense amount during this last few years. I, if, if, if you would have said three, four years ago that I, I would be spending a lot of my time raising money, I would have said you're crazy. But, you know, it's, a, it's really all, it, it's very simple. People have to like you they have to trust you and they have to believe in what you're doing. And those are the three things that matter. And, and without one of them, there's a thousand reasons to say no, but then there's only a few reasons to say yes. And so, you know, you know, getting that right 
is, is, it's so simple, but a lot of people fail to do that. And again, it's, it's easier and easier to, to, to build off itself as you continue to build track record and show people returns and comfort. And, and it, it, it kind of takes care of itself. And now it's a lot easier because again, it's not a concept anymore. It's it, the proof is kind of in the pudding. Yeah, that that's so cool. One last thing before we kind of wrap things up here today, I'd love your opinion of where the industry's going. Uh, we all know that it's taking off like a rocket ship, but from the standpoint of federal regulation, there's, in my opinion, and probably in yours as well, there's there's a limited horizon of time where the way that your company is structuring deals right now uh, is going to end. And, and by the way, the mechanics you have in place can apply to any industry. You just have a, a hot industry and there are going to be plenty of other opportunities, even once, uh, you know, cannabis is federally legalized. But I'm curious on your opinion of like, how long are we in this phase where, it's super high interest and super high returns with lots of equity kickers and warrants versus when does it um, kind of compress to more normal interest rates and maybe less of the kickers? Yeah, so overall, I think there's at least five to 10 years of what I would call alpha remaining, which means you know the outsized return on a relative basis to your alternative or senior debt in the non-cannabis world versus senior debt in the cannabis world. You know, here we are, this industry now, it's estimated that it's about an $80 billion retail market in the United States. 20 to 21 billion of that is in the state, the legal states, whether it's medical or recreational. And there's 59 or even more than that, that's still in the illicit or the, the, what's called the gray market. The transformation of going from a 20 to an $80 billion industry is there is so much value created when that happens. Also, the amount of capital that's gonna be needed to make that transformation is endless. And so the ultimately, there's a, an incredible opportunity that rarely exists in your lifetime where I think the last time something like this, this happened was the prohibition days of going from alcohol being illegal to, to legal. Everybody did it, but then that, that time is, is where you have a dislocation in the market where there's an ability to make an outsized return and, and be very protected. So I feel that there's at least five to 10 years of, of secular demand growth and overall industry growth that will be far in excess of any other industry. And so again, investing within that is, is, is I think a, a very good place to be and allocate you know, from a capital perspective, whether it's in debt or equity, I think both are, are prime opportunities. Uh, so I, I think that uh, there is a very long runway. And, and again, cannabis is something that you want to be with a specialist as opposed to an agnostic investor, because there are so many nuances for, for people to learn. And it, it's something that you, you want, you know, you want experience in. Yeah. Caution to just investing in any cannabis company that's out there because you guys don't do that. The leaders in the industry don't do that. I, I think that that's really important. But keep in mind that whenever things do uh, legalize federally, I think that there, there's always this delay, this lag before it catches up, before you know the the, the laws uh, around the legalization catch up. So even if something is federally legal, like cannabis or hemp is a great example, hemp is federally legal, 
though you still banks still can't lend on it. And it's been legal for some period of time now, right? A couple years or something. Yeah, uh, like over two years. But the, the banks can, but they just choose not to. There you go. And so there, there is going to be this time frame that even once it is legalized, that you still don't have uh, traditional lenders or traditional banks that are in the game. It's going to be a lot more still specialty lending, um, you know, organizations like Chicago Atlantic Group, which is a premier leader in this space. And you now have the attention of all the big cannabis companies, which I think is really exciting. I mean, you're a first stop shop. I mean, I, I know uh, some very high level executive level. I mean, I know a lot of entrepreneurs that are running these companies that are being bought by the powerhouses, the darlings in the industry, the big names. And I know people that have run those companies that are saying you're the first sh stop Chicago Atlantic group. And so I just uh, think that that's cool. And I wanted to share that, you know, with our audience. Yeah, no, that, that I appreciate that. And again, it's been just doing what we say, saying what we do. And, and ultimately, you know, reputation is a, a very valuable thing. And it also could be, a, a, you know, you're only as good as your last deal. So you, you always got to do right by, um, you know, people and do the right thing. That's awesome. Tony, thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, I appreciate it. This is such a fun, in-depth conversation, not only about your story, but you're a wealth of knowledge on the actual tactical side of things, the actual uh, mechanics of how to get a good return or how to protect yourself from a bad return. Uh, and so I thank you. Um, where can we find out more about you and about Chicago Atlantic Group? Yeah, you know, I think the best place to start would be, you know, ChicagoAtlantic.com, uh, our website. You know, we, we have a lot of information on there. If, if people have, in, you know, questions, uh, you know, I, I do like to share uh, knowledge about, you know, debt and, and so on. Uh, you know, they can shoot me an email at, at tcapple at ChicagoAtlantic.com, which T-C-A-P-P-E-L-L -L at ChicagoAtlantic.com. Awesome. Hey, thanks again. And uh, to our audience, to everyone listening and those of you watching, uh, I just want to again uh, end today's episode the way I end each episode. And that is to challenge you to take some form of action today. Move in the direction of financial freedom and a life by design, a life on your terms, and a life that is inspiring and compelling to live at the highest levels. So we will catch you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.